is. You know, here at Sovereign Grace, if you're new to us, we are a, we're not just a service, we're a family. We come together as a family of brothers and sisters. And as I was thinking about that reality this week and enjoying the different things that are happening in the church, it was another reminder to me that all these family moments are only possible because of this moment that we read about in Luke chapter 23. Without the Savior doing what he did at Calvary, none of this exists. There is no sovereign grace church. There is no joining together. There is no brothers and sisters. There is no family, which is the local church. Everything that we experience as a local church is only possible because of this moment. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, This subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. And needs Christ himself completely to expound it. Would God then by his spirit expound it to our hearts? I believe he is right. It is with some degree of intrepidation that pastors, particularly this pastor, takes on texts like this. Because this subject is worthy of an angel's tongue. How can you gather around Calvary and then step off the platform and feel like you have remotely done this scene justice? It is worthy of an angel's tongue, and so we are in need of the Lord's mercy and grace to us this morning to expound it to our hearts, that we may understand it, that we may treasure it, that we may stand in awe of what Christ has done for us. And so we're going to read together Luke chapter 23. We're going to read actually from verse 26 through to the end of verse 43. We did exposit verse 26 through to 34 last week, but to ensure the context, we're going to read the whole section again, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. Let's, let's once again attend this most important scene. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? To others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with them. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others. Let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine. And saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Oh Lord, we do come to you in prayer. Because this scene is worthy of an angel's tongue. And yet you have called this redeemed sinner to tell of it. Oh Lord, I'm in need of your help today. So Lord, would you bless the preaching of your word? Would you open our eyes? Would we walk this path with Jesus? Would we hear the crowd? Would it be as if we are there? And would this scene thrill our hearts as we stand in awe of you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Amen. You know, there are some stories that when you hear of them, just get stuck in your mind, aren't they? You remember where you were when you read it or heard it, and you remember it for the rest of your life. And in November 2005, I came across one such story in the newspaper entitled, Joe the Hero. It moved me at the time, it still moves me today, and this is Joe's story. It emerged yesterday that pothole victim Joe Lister died saving the lives of his classmates. Joe was among 11 pupils exploring a cave network at Upper Nidderdale, North Yorkshire, on Monday, accompanied by a teacher and a guide. Yet he was discovered missing after a head count. It is not known if the count took place above or below ground, but Joe was eventually recovered unconscious and died in hospital. School friend Lee Murphy said the 14-year-old hero let other children go before him to escape the rising waters only to find himself trapped underground himself. He said, it seems that he had to swim to get out the other side. I've heard there were only a couple of them left, and Joe told them to go first. A girl in front of Joe said she could feel him pushing her from behind as she went through. Everyone in the school is said to be in total shock. Teachers and pupils are simply stunned and upset by what has taken place. It is believed now that the cave system may have been hit by a flash flood after water thundered over the walls of the nearby Scarborough House Reservoir into the River Nid. The river, which rose up to four feet in an hour on the day of the tragedy, flows only yards from the five-foot entrance to the caves. Fencing worker William Standeven said normally a child can paddle in the river at the base of the reservoir, but on Monday the waters were raging. Yesterday... Joe's classmates at Tadcaster Grammar School changed their blue and white ties for morning black ties. Shocked head teacher Jeff Mitchell has described young Joe as an absolute delight. Grieving grandfather Bill Lister said, none of us know how this could have happened. Joe was such a strong swimmer. And Joe's parents, Martin and Paula of Steeton, simply said this, all we feel is total devastation. You know, it is hard as a parent to even imagine what it would be like to hear this news of your son. It's hard to put yourself in their 
choose for a moment and imagine getting that call or getting that knock at the door to inform you that your son has died. It's hard to imagine. But what is clear from this story is that Joe had died a hero. And this 14-year-old young man had died as a hero because what he was modeling right here in this incident was substitution. He could have gone first. He could have pushed through, but he didn't. He sent others on ahead, and they all felt him pushing them from behind. And then it was him that succumbed to the raging waters and the torrent that came in its place. You know, Joe Lister died a hero. But my friends, in an even greater way, here at Calvary, this is exactly what Jesus has done for us as well. Because right here we see another, even far greater story of substitution. This was the moment where he is giving his life away as a ransom for many. This is the moment where the guiltless one, the true son of God, becomes sin for us and takes on the consequence of our sin in our place as our substitute. And that's what the cross is all about. See, if you recall the film, The Passion, many people went to see it. They wanted to see and examine what happened to Jesus. And that's an appropriate thing to do. But in the text, all it says is, and they crucified him. And the film never explains why he was there. And it is the why he was there and who he is that makes this scene so incredible. The cross is all about Jesus as the Son of God giving his life away as a ransom for many, for you and for me. This is the moment when he, in effect, pushed you through the waters and took it himself for you. William Lane, in his fine commentary, says this about the cross and crucifixion. He says, death by crucifixion was one of the cruelest and most degrading forms of punishment ever conceived by human perversity, even in the eyes of the pagan world. Josephus, the Jewish historian, follows that when he says, crucifixion was the most wretched of all ways of dying. And so it was. And so there he is, the savior of the world, in the height of pain and the depth of shame. There he is. Why? Well, for you and for me. He's dying in this scene as our substitute. And that changes everything. I have three points then this morning. Number one, the depth of irony, verses 35 through 39. Number two, the simplicity of assurance, verses 40 to 43. And then we're going to close with the glory of hope. But I really come to this just with one aim. One hope in it all, and it's the heart that as we stop and stare at this Calvary scene this morning, we'd once again realize what an incredible Savior and King Jesus really is. Behold him, my friends. Behold him there. And behold him there for you. Number one, then, the depth of irony. In these verses, verses 35 through 39, we see here a very diverse group of people. There's a diverse group of people gathered around the cross, and yet they are unified in one thing. And that one thing is that they are here mocking Jesus. 
The one thing they have in common, all they're coming from different waves of life, is they're all here to mock Jesus. They want to pull Jesus down verbally and mock him even to his dying breath. And yet here's the reality. In a profound and compelling irony, unbeknown to each of the mockers, what they are actually doing in this moment, if we pay attention, is proclaiming the truth. They think they're mocking Jesus. And yet in the sovereignty and greatness of God, they are placarding before all our eyes this morning who Jesus is and why he is there. It is a stroke of genius. One writer describes this section as the gospel according to Jesus' enemies. And so it is. It is deep, deep irony. His enemies are there to mock him. And yet in reality, they are placarding before the world's eyes the absolute truth all about Jesus and his substitutionary sacrifice. It is amazing. First of all, then we have the mocking of the chief priests and the scribes. Look at verse 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. They are working on this premise in this moment. They are working on the premise of, listen, heads up, if you are God's savior, if you are the appointed Messiah, then come down. If you really are him, then come now, save yourself. Show us that you are really him. Prove it by getting down. This mockery wasn't just to Jesus in the moment. In the way it's written, it was actually to one another. They're standing around. They keep looking at him, but they're actually jeering and laughing at one another. This is a gaggle of people giggling here about how pathetic this one is. The whole premise is, listen, heads up, you can save others, allegedly, but you cannot save yourself. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, that is what he is hearing from them. As they mock him on the premise of you save others, but you cannot save yourself. What scorn, what mockery, and yet what compelling and ironic truth, is it not? Because they're right. In order to save others, he cannot save himself. They are placarding before the world the absolute realities of why Jesus is there. Donald English in his commentary says, What they taunt him for not doing, i.e. saving himself, is precisely so because he is doing what they ridicule, namely saving others. And he could not do both. It's amazing. They're mocking him. They're ridiculing him. And in actually what they're doing is placarding and proclaiming the truth. In order to save others, he cannot save himself. And as he's just told us a few chapters earlier, he came to seek and save the lost. And so that's why he stays. He stays. Because in order to save the lost, he must remain. What deep irony, don't you think? They're using it to mock him. But actually, they're proclaiming the truth. Then comes the mocking of the soldiers in verses 36 through 38. This is what he says. It says, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. 
As far as the soldiers are concerned in this scene, as they encounter Jesus this day, he appears to them anything but a king. This does not look like a king to them. He appears to them to be powerless and weak and helpless and humiliated. In this moment, he was nowhere near the image of what one would expect a king to be. He wasn't powerful and strong and noble. He was pathetic. And so as far as they were concerned, they are happy to mock him because what a joke you are. This mockery of Jesus started, as we know, the night before. The night before, the soldiers called the whole battalion together. They clothed Jesus in a purple robe. They twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. It was mockery. If you claim to be a king, what a joke you are. And then they lead him out to crucify him. And as they lead him out to crucify him, there is a sign that the head soldier is walking with all the way along that says, Jesus, the king of the Jews. And then having crucified him, they take this sign and they nail it above his head, placarding before all to see Jesus, the king of the Jews. This was profound mockery, profound scorn, because as far as they're concerned, he is a joke. And yet profound and compelling irony this is, don't you think? Because this is the king of the Jews. What they mean in mockery is actually being placarded for everybody to see. Because what they mean in mockery in this moment is actually God himself coronating his son as king of kings and lord of lords. This is the moment where Jesus revealed to everybody that he was the king of the Jews. He was indeed the king from another realm. This is the one that the Bible tells us is supreme in personhood. For he is the image of the invisible God. For in him the fullness of God dwells bodily. This is the one who is supreme in creation. For from him and through him and to him are all things. He's the one who breathed out the sun. He's the one that sustains each of the soldiers' hearts in this moment. So that they don't just die before him. And one day he is the one that every individual on the face of the planet will bow to as king of kings and lord of lords. And he is also the one who is supreme in reconciliation. For he has come to seek and save the lost. And so they mock him. They mock him, declaring him to be the king of the Jews. But in reality, what they are doing in this moment is taking part in his coronation. This is indeed the king of the Jews. In fact, this is the king of all. Pontius Pilate, as an extra point of ridicule, wanted to make sure everybody could read about this in every language. So King of Jews wasn't actually written in English, like we read it in our Bibles. It was written in Aramaic, it was written in Latin, and it was written in Greek, so that everybody around could read it. This is the King of the Jews! Mocking! But actually, you're declaring the truth. This is the King of the Jews. This is the one the world have been waiting for. This is him, the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one. And then comes the mocking of the criminals in another depth of irony moment. In Mark's gospel in chapter 15 verse 12, we discover that those who were crucified with Jesus also reviled him. It's clear then that the criminals, one on his right, one on his left, before anything takes place, they're both mocking Jesus. They're both getting stuck into Jesus. And yet in Luke's account, what you discover is while one of the criminals falls silent, the other one carries on. 
The other one still has more to say, more mockery to lather on Jesus. This is what he says in verse 39. It says, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Once again, such scorn and such mockery. And yet once again, what profound and compelling irony is this is. The working assumption, if you are really the Christ, if you really can save us, then save yourself, get down. When in all reality, in order to save us, he cannot save himself. He has to remain. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says the mocking criminal implied that he would have believed that Jesus was the Son of God had he come down from the cross. And yet he showed us he was the Son of God precisely because he stayed. Such depth of irony. They're using it each and every time to mock him, to ridicule him. And yet each and every time they are proclaiming the truth. This is the king. This is the savior. This is the chosen one. And yet as I was reflecting on this scene this week, oh my. My friends, we must understand how tempting this must have been for Jesus to say, I'm done. I am coming down. Tells us elsewhere in the Bible that a millennia of angels would have come to him in a moment and removed him. All he had to do was call their name. He could have come down. Imagine the reality of what he's going through in this moment. The extreme ridicule and mockery of the crowd. The very people he's come to serve are mocking him. He's not dying for himself. He's dying for them. And they're the ones that even now are spitting on him and mocking him. Declaring him to be some type of joke. Imagine the extremities of that. People that you are actually here to serve, and yet actually all they do is hate you. Imagine the extreme physical pain that he is in at this moment. Part of the reason why it was outlawed, actually not too long later, is because people realize it's just too cruel. So he's dying on the cross. In extreme physical pain, enduring extreme ridicule and mockery from the crowd. And then there's the extreme suffering of soul that he's experiencing. Which is the worst thing of all to him. For in this moment, he was wounded for our transgressions. In this moment, he was being crushed for our iniquities. And the father is turning his face away from him and pouring out his wrath on him. Imagine the temptation you would feel to just come down, bring it all to an end. And yet he doesn't. He remains. He stays. Why? Well, for you. And for me. He remains for us. Kent Hughes in his commentary said this, He said, the cross reveals the love of God like nothing else in the universe ever could. I was so taken by that statement this week. As you stand near Calvary and you realize, may I never wonder whether you love me. Because clearly you do. He remains.
He stays there in this moment for you and for me. The cross reveals the love of God like nothing else in the universe ever could. And so there he hangs. Dying in our places, our substitute. What you see here then through the mockery of Jesus' enemies is deep, deep irony. And benign to each of these mockers, they are actually declaring in this moment the truth. Jesus was indeed the king. He was indeed the chosen one and the savior of the world. And in order to save others, he could not save himself. They're looking to ridicule him. Yet in actually, in God's sovereign power, they are proclaiming for everybody to see, this is him. This is the king. This is the chosen one. This is the Messiah. And right now, he is being coronated as the king. Because this is the moment he gives his life away. As a ransom for many. What deep, deep irony, don't you think? But then in, with that as a backdrop comes the simplicity of assurance. Which is point two. The simplicity of assurance. Because as all this is taking place and all these voices are coming towards Jesus in deep, deep irony. A lone voice of another then begins to emerge. An unexpected lone voice of another as one of the criminals on the cross next to him starts to speak up. This is what he says, verses 40 and 41. But the other criminal rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. This is an unexpected voice to be heard in this moment because as we read in Mark 15, this same criminal had just been mocking Jesus. They were both mocking Jesus at the start. They were both reviling him. They both thought him to be some type of joke. And yet in God's abounding grace, all that had seized for this one criminal because in God's grace, he had now realized who Jesus really was. In God's abounding grace, this man had realized, stop, wait. This is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the chosen one. This is the one we've been waiting for. And so as he starts to come to his senses, the scales fall from his eyes and he realizes who Jesus is. He hears the other criminal still abusing Jesus and mocking Jesus. And this whole premise is, listen, stop. We shouldn't be doing this. Because this is him. You and I, we we deserve to be on the cross. We deserve it. We're criminals. We're thieves. Some commentators say there may have even been people that worked with Barabbas. Barabbas is cronies. They had given their lives to be criminals. And yet this man knew the one in the middle, Jesus, he shouldn't be here. Because he has done Nothing wrong. So he tells the other criminal, we got to stop, be quiet. We have done wrong, but this man hasn't. He's in effect telling us in this moment, this is the king we've been waiting for. And then he says to him, in verse 33, a most bankrupt and contrite request that comes from a humble heart. Verse 42. And he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Our friends, I want you to understand, when he says that, there is no bravado or confidence in his tone that Jesus is going to answer that at all. He's not proud of himself. He's aware, listen, hey, I've got nothing. I've got, I got no reason at all why I should be with you. I got nothing. But Jesus, when you, when you get there and you get into your kingdom, if there's any way you could remember me, it comes from a heart that is bankrupt, a heart that is contrite, a heart that understands, I got, I got nothing to offer you. But if there's any way, when you go there, could you remember me? And then comes a most astounding response, verse 42. Sorry, 43. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. (laughs) Oh my, what an astounding response that is, don't you think? This man knows I got nothing to offer you. I've done nothing for you. And yet he tells him in this moment a most astounding promise. And the most astounding promise is that today you'll be with me in paradise. What he is promising him in this moment is when your eyes close in death, which will come very soon, today you'll be with me in the heavenly realms. What an astounding promise to give this criminal on the cross in this moment. He is promising him the joys of heaven. You know, heaven is something that I don't think we think enough about. But to pause and linger on paradise in a moment is to realize this is happy, happy days for this criminal. Heaven is a place where there'll be no more pain. No more arthritis or mental illness or speech disorders. No more cancer or AIDS or tooth decay or heart attacks or asthma or eczema. There'll be no more broken down bodies in heaven in any realm. Place, the heaven will be a place where there'll be no more sin. There'll be no more adultery or rape or murder or theft or fear or immorality or drunkenness or crime or war or abuse. There'll be no more death or decay or corruption. Heaven will be filled with things that are no more. But it will also be filled with things that are forevermore. Heaven will be a place of laughter. Heaven will be an explosion of joy. What will it be like to hear the Father's laugh erupting in the heavenly realms? Have you ever thought about that? Don't you want to make him laugh and hear the joy of that? What will it be like to hear the Savior chuckling at something you say? What will it be like to hear his voice? What will it be like to be around him? In heaven, there will be laughter in our eyes. There will be feasting and drinking together. There will be music and there will be worship. Heaven will be a place of paradise. Trees and fields and rivers and mountains and glaciers. They're just a mere foretaste of what we will experience in the heavenly realms. Everybody that exists on this earth that is really good at something, artists, craftsmen, whatever it be, those skills are a mere dim reflection of the skills of the Father that is now building heaven for you and me. It is going to be a most remarkable and incredible place. And wonderfully, we will have new bodies to enjoy it. The happy reality of the Bible is we won't just be angels or ghosts. Thank goodness for that. I don't want to be one of those three-foot cherubims on a cloud playing a harp. I don't want to go if that's the case. The good news is that is not the case. That is not in the Bible. That is in the media. But it is not in the Bible. In the heavenly realms, we will still have bodies. And we will have bodies and souls that will be transformed and made perfect. You will still be recognized. You will still carry your own name. How do I know that? 
Well, Luke chapter 9 of the transfiguration. Who rocks up? Moses and Elijah. They don't say, oh, I wonder who this is. He looks totally different. They're like, no, it's Moses and it's Elijah. Still Moses, still Elijah, still recognizable. You still have your name, you still have your frame, and yet you'll be different. Because you will be able to run and walk and touch and talk and see in here in glorious perfection like you never have here on this earth. In the heavenly realms then, we won't be alone. We will be with angels and creatures. I hope it's like Narnia. I want to be with one of those horsemen things. I want to be like, I want. can you carry me for the day? Because this looks like a lot of fun. We will be with angels. We will be with creatures. We will be with folks from the past. We will be able to get introduced to Noah and Moses and King David and Joshua and Paul and Peter and James. We'll be able to look Enoch in the eye and say, Enoch, where did you go? We, we will be able to talk to people from the past and engage with them. What was it like when you dudes are in the boat and he wakes up and stills the storm? What was it like? We are going to be filled with stories for millennia to come, understanding what was it like walking with Jesus. There will be Christians there from every tribe and language and nation, all singing, worthy is the Lamb. There will be people from our past who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that we will be reunited with for all eternity, to sing of his praises with for all eternity, and by his grace and for his glory. And most importantly of all, Jesus will be there. The Savior of the world will be there. The one who died for you will be there. Wayne Grudem says that this way. He says, when we look into the face of our Lord and he looks back at us with infinite love, we will see in him the fulfillment of everything that we know to be good and right and desirable in the universe. In the face of God, we will see the fulfillment of all the longing we have ever had. To know perfect love, peace and joy, and to know truth and justice, holiness and wisdom, goodness and power and glory and beauty. Listen, when we finally see the Lord face to face, our hearts will want for nothing else. What a happy moment that will be. When we finally gaze at Jesus Christ in his face, our hearts will want for nothing else because we will see the sum of everything we'd been hoping for. And this criminal who hangs on the cross has just been told, today, that's what you'll see. It's astounding. It's the astounding promise, not only of forgiveness, but it's the astounding promise that heaven will be home. You are going to be with me for all eternity. It's an astounding promise then because he promises him heaven. And it's also an astounding promise if you take a second look. That this will happen today. And it's astounding because when we pay attention, here's what we see. This is yet another wonderful reminder that salvation really is all of grace and not by works. Picture the scene. Okay, so my life, let me check it off. Well, I've been a thief like my whole life. Did you ever go to church? Uh, probably not, no. Did you read the Bible for any year? A Bible? Sorry? Okay, you didn't. Never mind. Uh, did you ever give to the poor? Uh, no, I stole from people. Okay. Okay, so why are you in heaven? How did you get here? Well, I was hanging on a cross 
And then I realized to my right is the savior of the world. And I asked him if I could get in. I put my faith in him and he said I could. So I'm here. Isn't that a happy reality? Our salvation is all by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. It is not about our works. This man is a living, breathing illustration in the heavenly realms that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. What a wonderful reminder he is. Other people around him that probably had things stolen off him must have been like, oh, hang on a minute, there might have been a mistake, this dude. And they're like, no, no, he was saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's our only hope. My friends, this man is a wonderful reminder to us that salvation is all of grace and not by works. And what a reminder it is and what a reminder we regularly need, do we not? Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, the practical importance of justification by grace alone cannot be exaggerated. For the glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sin. But our greatest temptation and mistake is to try and smuggle character into his work of grace. Oh, it's so true. My friends, as Christians, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Boom, done, it is finished. And yet as Christians, how often do we try and smuggle in our works into salvation that is all of grace? And how do we do that? Well, we try and smuggle them in thinking, oh, he must be, I don't even know if I'm going to get to heaven because I'm terrible at my Bible reading and I haven't been able to attend group like I'd really hope to and I'm not enjoying worship. I don't know whether I'm going to get in. No, wrong. That is smuggling in works. You are not saved because of your works. It's not the cross plus your Bible reading plus your prayer. No, it is the cross. Done. Exclamation mark. It is finished. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, heaven is your home. We must work hard then not to smuggle in our works and shake our heads and wonder, I don't know if I've done enough to get there. What you're actually saying in that is, is Christ done enough for me to get there? And I want to let you know, yes, he has. When he said it is finished, it was finished. And when you put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior, at that very moment, he paid it all in full. And he said to you, in effect, listen, when your eyes close in death, you will be with me in paradise. Yeah, but Jesus, I haven't started my Christian walk yet. You know, there's lots of things I need to get done. Hey, listen, just slow down. Regardless of how that goes, it is finished. You will be with me in paradise because I've adopted you and forgiven you. And assured you that heaven will be your home. Because it's all about me and my works. And not about yours. It's the scandal of the gospel. It's the glory of grace. And I think this criminal, as he hangs on the cross and is told, Today you'll be with me in paradise, is a wonderful reminder that salvation is all of grace. And not by works. So point three, the glory of hope, just to finish. And here's the glory of the hope we have in Christ. The glory of hope is simply this, that this is still the way that this great salvation works to this day. There is no track B or track C. There's just plan A, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what a glory of hope that really is, is it not? 
You guys are quiet today. Or maybe I'm just used to to going overseas. Is this good news? This is great news. This is amazing stuff. We are saved through the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. Listen, if you are here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then thanks for coming. Thanks for being here. I'm sure there are things that happen in church life that make you feel a bit strange. But we're really grateful that you're here. And we are thrilled that you would be a visitor in our midst today. And we're honored to have you here. Maybe you are wondering in and of yourself, this heaven of which this guy talks, how do I know if I'm going to get there? Well, my friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the reality is, is in and of yourself, you're not going to get there. Because you can't. The chasm between you and heaven that you need to jump is more than you ever could. It doesn't matter how much charity work you do. It doesn't matter how much you might pray, how nice you might be to people. I mean, I've even, like, you know, every year I'm trying to give money away to things. It doesn't matter. The chasm is too wide. You can't do it. See, the reality of the Bible is that God made us. It was God that knitted us together in our mother's womb. In fact, the greatest gift he's ever given us is actually the gift of life. He created you. And he created you to find your identity and your hope and your belonging in him as your creator. The challenge is you and me alike decided not to do that, didn't we? We were created. But then as a creation, we decided, I don't know whether I really want to live for you as my creator. I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to reject you as the creator, and I'm just going to enjoy your creation. I like your kingdom, but I don't want you to be my king. And the Bible says that that's sin. That's what sin actually is. It's rejecting God's rule over our lives, God's desire for our lives. And because of that, we are cut off from God, and we can't make the jump back by ourselves because the chasm is too big. But God so loved the world, Jesus tells us, that he gave his only son, That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. My friends, those were the words of Jesus. The one who here is hanging on the cross. And he's hanging on the cross as our substitute. He's making it possible in this moment for the chasm to go from where we are at to spending time with God. And that bridge is the bridge of the cross. And he tells us, listen, when you put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior then I will take your consequence and you can walk over my cross to be where you always desired to be. You can be with God. You can be forgiven of your sin. You can be redeemed. You can be adopted. You can know that heaven is your home. That is exactly what the criminal does in this moment. And my friends, if you do it in this moment, you too, in this moment, will be saved. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, we read in Romans, and believe in your heart that God raised from the dead, then you will be saved. I did that when I was about 20 years old, and I never looked back. As I realized, like the criminal on the cross, um, hey, I got nothing. I'm not even very good. My life was a bit of a mess at that time. I'm all over the place. And for the first time, I realized in my life, Jesus, you've got everything, and I got nothing. And I put my faith in him as a Lord and Savior. And I never looked back. 
And it was in that moment I knew what it was to be forgiven of my sin and adopted into the Father's family and to know that heaven was my home. Not because of my behavior. I'd done nothing. But because I knew he had died in my place. And through his substitutionary death, I may have life. Listen, unbelief, you can do the same today. You just put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior. And in that moment, you will know heaven is my home. Because that's the truth of Scripture. Maybe though you're here today and you are a Christian. And yet even as a Christian, you are wondering, will heaven really be my home? Will I make it? Will I actually make it? I mean, I I hope so. But will I definitely make it? Well, my friends, I want to encourage you. What a sweet reminder this cry of assurance really is, don't you think? What a sweet reminder that when it comes to our great salvation, nothing in our hands do we bring. Simply to the cross we Jesus was hanging on the cross as our substitute. And if you have truly put your faith in him as Lord and Savior, then his words back to you is, hey, listen up. When you die, you will be with me in paradise. Because it was never about your behavior. It was never about your works. It was about mine. My friends, what a glorious Savior he is, isn't he? What a king of kings and what a lord of lords. This is substitution. And as we stop and stare at it, may we be in awe of what we see. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I do thank you for presencing yourself with us today. I thank you that I do sense you've drawn near to us in your kindness and your grace. And Lord, thank you for helping us to stop and stare at this most remarkable scene. Lord, as the crowd mocks you at this moment, in reality, they are placarding before our eyes the truth. You are the king. You are the chosen one. And in order to save us, you cannot save yourself. And you remain there for each one of us. Lord, would we live in the good of that glorious reality then? Would we guard our hearts from smuggling in works to a salvation that is all of grace? You have paid it all. And so to you goes all the glory. In Jesus' name.